Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to, some people like to group these last two Beatitudes together, but I'm going to take them separately. So that means that we'll take one this week, and then next week we'll be gone on Wednesday, and uh, then we'll pick up the following Wednesday with the next one, the final one in verse 11 and 12. But uh, let's take a look at this tonight, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Beatitudes. Let's uh, review a little bit. Where is uh, Jesus speaking this? On a mountain. Okay, we're, man, we're going to, every time we come to chapter 5, I want us to think, this is on a mountain. This is uh, on a mountainside somewhere, and Jesus is teaching something called, what? The Beatitudes, and it's part of a larger sermon called Sermon on the Mount. If you listen to it straight through, how long does it take? About 15 minutes. Don't you wish I preached that short? 15 minutes, and... If, if we got all that he said there. And uh, who's he primarily talking to? His disciples, right? And then who may be part of the listeners in? Crowd, right? There's a crowd there that's uh, with Jesus. But primarily it seems that he's talking to his disciples and there are other people that are listening in. And that, that often happens with Jesus, that there always seems to be these concentric circles of people around him. And I find that sometimes is true in churches too, is that there's uh, there may be concentric circles like those who are really committed, those who are a little bit committed, those who are like on the fringe, like let's see what's going on here. I'm not really sure, and uh, that can that can often be the case. I love how Jesus draws people in. Um, in uh, chapter five, verse ten, the beatitude for tonight is: Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a really unexpected beatitude. You wouldn't expect somebody to say, you're blessed if you're persecuted, right? You'd expect somebody to say, you're blessed if, if all things are going well, all, all, all systems are go, uh, like no troubles. That's, that's when you're blessed. But, but Jesus kind of in this flips it on its head. You know, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, uh, and blessed are those who are persecuted here for righteousness sake. And I think it's important that we understand not just persecuted, persecuted for righteousness sake. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And this uh, this comes on the heels, interestingly enough, that uh, blessed are those. What's, what's just prior to this? You can look in the Bible there. I'll let you have an open book for this quiz. Okay, just prior to chapter, verse 10, peacemakers, right? And so, uh, the people of God are trying to make peace. What does this tell us in verse 10? That even though they make, they try to make peace, what? <laughs> they can't make peace with everybody because some people are setting themselves against God's people. And so uh, trouble often finds those that are following Christ because of the allegiance that we have as the people of God to a certain side of a conflict against an unholy trinity. What's the unholy trinity that we're, we're fighting here? The devil, the flesh, and the world. Okay, the world, the flesh, and the devil, however you'd want to put those. In my notes, I had the devil, the world, and the flesh. Uh, but there's three of those things that we're, we're battling against, aren't we? How many passages do you think are in the Bible relating to persecution? How many? Forty-two. 20, okay? Any more? Any other guesses? I, you're not going to be held responsible. Peter's not going to ask this question before you can get in at the pearly gates, so it's just a guess. Any other guesses? 30? Okay. Thir- 31. <laughs> this is like the price is right. Whoever gets the highest, the closest without going over. Now, um, in all of the Bible, there's, uh, let me make sure I get this right, there's 204 passages, according to Nave's topical Bible, not verses, passages. 
I mean, some of these passages are many verses. I, th- I think that's really interesting, don't you? And when it comes to the New Testament, uh, there are 113 in the New Testament alone. And so these include things like Cain and Abel. Um, you would see here Joseph and his brothers. He's being persecuted, isn't he? Uh, Moses and Pharaoh, David and Saul. Uh, passages like um, in the Psalms, you would see Nehemiah and the unholy trinity that was actually humans. Uh, you know, the three that fought against Nehemiah in the wall building. And, and others in the New Testament. There's lots of passages relating to this. But the thing that I think is interesting here is this is the first time in the New Testament that persecution is mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, at least in, in our reading, when we would come to it chronologically, we would come to chapter 5, verse 10, and it would talk about persecution. We hear about that for the first time in the New Testament. So something interesting to me about persecution is that we have no New Testament writer that allows us to be victims of persecution. Do you know what I mean by that? We don't get to be victims, even when we're persecuted. No New Testament writer will allow us that mentality when it comes to persecution. Instead, we're to, uh, and there are seven quick things here, we're to expect that it will come, okay? We're to take an eternal perspective on it. We're to rejoice in it. We're not to give up because of it. We're to know that God is, uh, God sees it. We're to know that justice will be done, and we're to respond with kindness and prayer. Those are the things that ought to happen as a response to persecution. So he says here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. I want to make sure that we don't split that sentence up and just say blessed are those who are persecuted. Because there's a lot of people who are persecuted for different reasons. But this, uh, this blessing is reserved for those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Because of righteousness. Because they want to, in some way live the righteous life, not just those who are persecuted. So let's define our terms here. This is a, an interesting word, persecute. Okay, dioko, the O with the line over it is a hard O, dioko, persecute. And it means, in Greek, it means to run after, which is kind of a strange thing to to have there. And in this context, it means to harass someone especially because of their beliefs, to systematically organize a program to oppress and harass somebody, according to another dictionary. And what I found interesting about this is that this same word is used of pursuing the things of God as well. Pursue peace, pursue righteousness, pursue uh, goodness, trying to th- pursue love, pursue spiritual gifts. All of these are the same. This is the same word. And what I think it means is to run after with some intention. And, and so sometimes this was used in war to run after and chase something off. Okay? And sometimes it was intended to run after. It's like uh, somebody is hunting you down in order to ill-treat you. So you can see where persecution might come out of that. In terms of the godly things, we're running after those things. We're pursuing them. But in terms of persecution, it's to chase after to harass. It's like we might say to our persecutors, wouldn't you just leave us alone? I mean, you know, live and let live. But no, that's not the thing that's going to happen. The thing that's going to happen is to pursue some kind of conflict with those who are righteous in one sense or another. So, uh, and this is a verb in the perfect tense. Does anybody know what that means? That means for us that it means an action that began in the past but continued on after that. It wasn't something like you were persecuted once, and so what a victim you are. Now, blessed are those who are persecuted. And as Matthew writes this, one of the commentators said that probably he's writing to a church, the church, that's being persecuted. And so as they receive this, they're hearing it as though their persecution is part of what Jesus considers the blessed life. Okay? That's important because it continues to our day. If we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, that blessing is for us as well. It continues into our day. There are uh, three meanings of righteous in the New Testament, well, in Scripture, but in the New Testament in particular. And so when we ask, who are the righteous here, uh, and what does it mean to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness? Because sometimes we tend to... Um, 
gloss a word and we give it one definition and then we just we cause that definition to go everywhere that word is found. But but in different settings, the words mean different things. So let me mention some of these and let's see which one we think fits best here. The first uh, definition of righteousness that we find is justice or fairness. So it'd be like a righteous judge or acting in a way that's right towards other people. Okay. So we want to do what's right and fair. So it's kind of a judicial responsibility with the focus on fairness, Uh, justice, equitableness, fairness. That would be one definition. It's quality or state or practice of that kind of thing. And so this has to do with treating other people fairly. Okay? The second uh, way that this is taken is would be in the, the sense of right standing before God. This is a judicial declaration that happens when we're saved, is that God declares us righteous before him based on faith. Okay, We haven't done any new works. If we came to this altar and we confessed our sins and we turned to God in faith with all of our heart, uh, at that moment, positionally, in your standing before God, you're right before him. Everybody know what that means, that righteousness is by faith. It starts because we've trusted in God. And before we've ever gotten up to do any action that's righteous, righteousness has been imputed to us through Christ. Okay, We're incorporated into Christ, and as God looks at us, he sees us in uh, in Christ, you could say encapsulated in Christ, so that when he sees us, he's seeing Christ. Okay, That's positional righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. I don't know that that's what Jesus has in mind here, and I'm not sure that the first one is what Jesus has in mind at this particular moment. But there's a third definition of righteousness that I think is really important, and that's upright behavior. And Jesus often refers to this kind of behavior that is the right thing. There's a right and a wrong thing to do. And so when he's talking about righteousness here, this is the quality or characteristic of upright behavior, uprightness, righteousness. And so it's not just something that we are, it's something also that we do. So I I think one of the best ways to distinguish that and the previous one is that when you come to Christ, you're imputed righteousness because of Christ. Okay, are you with me? So it's charged to your account, it's credited to your account because of Christ. But then there's something else that happens. The Holy Spirit comes in and he starts to impart righteousness practically so that as we walk, we walk a righteous kind of lifestyle. And I think that's incredibly important. This is a, a call not just to be be uh, in right standing with God in our position, but now in our practice, we do the right thing before God. So I think this is really what Jesus has in mind. Although the two are connected, we can't really offer true righteousness without first being forgiven. Remember what Jeremiah says and Paul too, our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags, dirty, dirty, stinky dishcloths, right? Refuse. But then when we're saved, then our actions purified by the Holy Spirit can honor God for the first time. And so now we have this practical kind of righteousness. And so what Jesus, I think, is talking about here is the kind of righteous life that is lived out because of our relationship with God and allegiance to him. But because we have that, we want to do what's right in his eyes. This is so important in the Bible, right in the eyes of the Lord, not right in the eyes of culture. Remember, we're in the middle of a a battle here against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, We're not fighting people. Uh, but we are taking a different side in our allegiance. And so that means that we ask not what this world say is right, but what does God say is right? Okay, so we, we live that out. And as a result of that, the world recognizes the distinction and puts you on and me on the other side. Okay, You're not of us. This, these are Jesus' word in the upper room before he was crucified. You're not of us. Okay? Uh, you're you're of of God, although they, I don't know that they would say that. So probably the most general sense of wanting to be right and do right is what's meant here. And so persecution in the Bible is tied to standing with God for what's right against what's wrong. In uh, one study Bible I read, it said this: those who uphold God's standards of truth are the righteous of truth, justice, and purity, refusing to follow and walk in the ungodly lifestyles of society, uh, that they will be 
unpopular. There's different translations for this. I'm going to skip over some of that, but uh, this is what uh, persecution means, but righteousness is the cause of that persecution. I thought we might take a look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and if you'd like to see that reference, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. I think Peter kind of draws some of this out a little bit, and he's done a little bit prior to this in chapter 3 when he says, if you're if you're a persecutor, if you suffer uh, for the sake of being righteous, you're blessed. And now he comes to chapter 4, and he, he expands upon that. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. Okay, let's process that a moment. He's telling believers, probably in uh, Bithynia, somewhere in Asia Minor, uh, he's telling them, when you get persecuted, don't, don't be shocked by that. Don't be surprised by that, as if something strange were happening. Verse 13 says, But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His uh, glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer, listen to this, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal. (laughs) And then (laughs) check out this last one, or as a meddler. Don't suffer for that. I don't know what kind of crime that, uh, what kind of law that breaks, but it's not, it's not nice. Okay, so don't suffer for those reasons. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So I'd like you to notice uh, something that happens here. I'm going to try to put this on the screen for us, and we'll see if it works. Maybe it will. Uh, He has here... Uh, suffer. Okay, but he means persecution, but he can't say that because he needs to deal, he makes, he needs to purse, sorry, let's do this. And uh, he can't use persecution because he needs to make another point. But he's equating these two things. So he's talked about suffering for Christ's name. What would we call that? We'd call that persecution, wouldn't we? Okay, but he needs to make a more general point. And so he substitutes these things because persecution is suffering, but not all suffering is persecution. Is that, isn't that right? Sometimes we suffer for other reasons. So this doesn't have to do with not being liked. When Jesus says, and Peter talks about this kind of suffering, it's not because we're disliked because of conflicting personalities. Sometimes people don't like other people because they their personality rubs them the wrong way. Not here, but I've heard about that in other churches, right? So there are those things that can happen sometimes uh, where people don't. But that's not persecution, not being liked because... Uh, we haven't learned how to get along with people. That's not persecution. Okay, Then uh, this doesn't have to do with general differences like race and culture and language. It's not that. That's not persecution. That may be another kind of persecution, but that's not the kind of person persecution Jesus is talking about here. It's not just because people don't like you because you're different from them. Okay, it's It's not that. And then it's also not having to do with disapproval because of our bad behavior. Sometimes people get a victim mentality. I remember hearing about a mobster in uh, New York that the cops finally chased him down. This is probably back in the 30s. And uh, he, had sh- he had shot a policeman. He was making out with some girl in his car, and a policeman came up, and he shot him, killed him. And then they chased him down to some high-rise apartment in New York City, and they got into a gun battle there. And he wrote this note, like, I don't know why the world hates me so much, why everybody's persecuting me. We're not persecuted when we do wrong. And that's the point Peter's trying to make is that sometimes we suffer for our own mistakes, uh, our own sins. That's not the same thing that Jesus is talking about or Peter's talking about because this persecution has to do with something uh, else altogether. This is being persecuted for 
righteousness sake. So Peter's concern about suffering has to do with uh, some things here in verse 12 with preparation. We need to be prepared that part of following Christ may require that we do the right thing and take hard stands, and that could create persecution. Okay. I want to talk about that in just a moment in a way that's more related to our life. Like We're talking about kind of abstract concepts right now, but there are some things that may be coming that um, are going to challenge us. Like how are, how are we going to respond to these things? Are we willing to go through the hardship for it? So in verse 12, he wants to prepare them, Peter does, with don't be surprised by this fiery ordeal as if something strange were happening. I think probably what Peter is suggesting is Jesus went through it, the disciples went through it, the prophets went through it. Anybody who tried to stand on God's side and do the right thing, they're going to find conflict against them because there's a world that likes to live in darkness. Then he talks about uh, identification, and this is rejoice because of your participation in the sufferings of Christ, verse 13 and 14. You're connected to Christ, and so you're identified with Christ in this. So you ought to rejoice in that. And then uh, the distinction, if you suffer, don't be because you're a murderer and everything in between all the way to meddling. Verse 15, there ought to be a distinction in why you suffer if you have to suffer for Christ. And then the edification. Check this out. I, I don't understand all of this, but he says if you have to suffer according to God's will, maybe in God's will, God's got this part, part of his plan is that you might go through hardship and even persecution. Do you see that right there? That's in First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. If you suffer according to God's will... Commit yourself to him, your creator, your faithful creator, and what? Continue to do good. What that means is that if you're facing persecution, the edification is don't give up. Keep trusting him by committing your life to him, that this is his. He knows what's going on. He knows what's best. He'll get us through it and continue to do good. In other words, be faithful and don't stop doing good because hardship comes. So then... It occurs to me in all of this, and coming back to our Matthew 5 passage, that righteousness here has to do with identifying with Jesus and upright living, both of those things. So we're persecuted in the New Testament for our identification with Jesus because the world hates him, okay? because he, by his own goodness and by his sacrifice, by the very necessity of needing a Savior, that says the world is fallen and sinful. Are you with me? Okay. The very fact that Jesus came, it's saying that. And then I think the world is also rebuked by his goodness. And he doesn't lightly put up with <laughs> empty religion, does he? So righteousness has to do with those, those things. I think what we're going to uh, see increase, and this is, I think, where the rubber will meet the road for us, is that we're going to face persecution not as a direct consequence of Christian doctrine, but from things that are indirectly related to it. And I want to explain what I mean by that. I think, I think at least first, persecution will hit hardest. It will be where we, where we are seen as a threat to a person's right to express themselves. You, you see where I'm going with this? Okay, so um, I think which is inevitable because we believe and proclaim the gospel, and the gospel is both death and life, isn't it? It makes claims about human nature and about our society, uh, about wh which our society increasingly rejects. Uh, we say human nature is corrupt because of sin, and they say there's no such thing as human nature, only social constructs. Like, whatever we're living in, we've created this. Okay? There's no right and wrong. There's no human nature. We are what we choose. Okay, But the gospel comes and says, no, we're not what we choose. We are what God says we are. And he says that we're fallen. And we're in need of a savior. But the world is increasingly rejecting that. And they will say, there's no such thing as human nature, only social constructs. And what that means is that what I feel is what I am. And the gospel says, we've been ruined by sin. And only by turning to God can our true humanity be 
restored. And this is where the conflict will be. So if you teach your kids that homosexuality is wrong, the world's not going to like that because it goes against their system of thinking that we are what we think we are. Are you with me? Or if there's gender dysphoria, we'll just be, use the nice word for it, then, uh, and if we, we talk about, no, we are what God says we are, not what we think we are, then we're, we're become intolerant and narrow-minded. And I, I think we're seeing more and more, there was a, a bill that was up recently, I can't remember, uh, Proposition 43, did anybody read up on that a little bit? It talks about... Um, some of the things that are coming in the public schools regarding sex education and all of that. And you know that they're not going to teach it from a God-centered worldview. Okay? So, and the point of all of this is that there are going to be those who want to take that particular approach and say, that's okay. And if we take a stand and say, this is wrong, not because we want to limit human freedom. We're not trying to do that. We want to, for me, I'm, I would want to fight for the right to, to be able to say to our kids, this is right and wrong behavior. And even that's being challenged nowadays, right? right? If people want to go off and do their own sinful thing, that's one thing. But if they want to tell me or you, we can't tell our kids that this is wrong, we ought to have a real problem with that, right? And so I think that's where it's coming to is that, in time, because this philosophy has taken off, and uh, I was listening to a guy today, I want to refer to him in just a moment, but he was, he was saying that after the printing press was invented, information began to, to just pour out. And what happened following that was the Reformation, and it took about 100 years of bloodshed for that to chill out and for things to e- kind of equalize a little bit, Okay. Not all, of, not all of that was bad. I'm not saying the bloodshed part, but not all of what the printing press produced was bad. Of course, the Great Reformation were part of that tradition. But he said what the printing press has done in terms of information uh, and the change in the world over a short period of time, think about the effect of the Internet and social media. He says that's multiplied mega times over in today's world. And we're going through a rapid transformation. He was saying today that, I think it was just 2015 when the Supreme Court lifted the ban on gay marriage. 2015. That seems like ages ago. And now look how far we've gone into our confusion. And the reason for that is because there's a great mega um, media, I'm trying to think of the right word here, bullhorn voice box out there that's telling people this is who we are, and now uh, it's pushed us well beyond. Like, we thought we were fighting uh, against issues of gay marriage, and now, like, it's moved way past that. That's not even the battle line anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's not that we've abandoned that, that that's, we said that, but now we're fighting for the very identity of who a person is biologically. Do Do you see what I'm saying? And this is the interesting thing to me, is that this is not the main issue, like, we don't want to be dying on that hill fighting that battle. That's not even the main point. The main point is that people are living in rebellion against God. But this is the front on which we're forced to fight. Are you with me? Like, that's, that's not the battle we would choose to be fighting. But that's the battle we're faced with is teaching kids, our kids, this is what's right and wrong. Saying to a culture, there are behaviors that God condones and behaviors that he rejects and condemns and being able to say that like we don't want to be fighting on that front but that's what we've been that's what we've been forced with and so it comes down really to this there's a there's a term for this kind of thinking it's called expressive individualism that i'm an individual and individual rights supersede um, community rights and individuals should have the right to express themselves. Okay? And so that doesn't sound all too bad. It's part of our foundation of Western civilization. But then what that means for us is that all emotions are allowed and nobody has a right to challenge anybody else's emotions. You dare not tell me what's right and wrong to feel. Which is kind of interesting because if you're biblical, you know 
that God often challenged how people felt. Is it right for you to feel this way? Those are the very words of God. Is it right for you to feel this way? Because sometimes we need that challenge to come in and say, you don't get a right to feel however you want. We belong to the Lord. And so he has a right to call us on that. If you want to read an interesting book on this, this guy's not a Christian, but he takes an interesting parallel to Christian belief on this. His name's Theodore Dalrymple. He wrote Spoiled Rotten. Spoilt, spoilt, he spells it with a T. Spoilt, rotten, the toxic cult of sentimentality. And sentimentality, he means living by emotions. He says everybody feels like they have a right to go out and express their angry emotions in public and just be who they are. And he says it's tearing us up. We've let all social convention go to the wayside. And he's a psychiatrist. He was a prison psychiatrist in Britain for over 30 years. And he saw all this play out. And he said, one of the places we've gone wrong is we've let our emotions off the leash. So there's emotions. That's part of expressive individualism. And Christianity says the flesh must die. Remember I said this is a gospel of death and life. Death to self, death to flesh is part of the battlefront that we're facing. And life. Okay. And if, if you challenge somebody in their emotions, you're probably going to get it back. Are you with me? Like if you say, that's really not the, why should you be this angry if you challenge somebody how they feel? Or maybe you say to them, you may have a right to feel that way, but you don't have a right to act that way. They may respond, I have a right. It's authentic for me. If I'm going to be authentic, I have to act how I feel. And as Christians, you know, that's a no-no. Come on, isn't that true? Like the, we, have to, we have to subject the flesh. We have to mortify the flesh. And that means our emotions we have to tell the emotions who they have to behave. And so in that kind of emotional thing, happiness is the chief good, but we understand that that's not the chief good. The chief good is God's glory. And so we're battling on that front. Then we're battling a battle with identity. Is identity self-directed or God-defined? Do we choose our identity or does God choose? And, and I know you know the answer to that. But does our culture know that? Do our kids know the answer to that? Who determines who we are? Now, I would suggest to you that we don't really know who we are until we come to Jesus, and then he helps us to find our true identity in him. I'm telling you, I did not know who I was. And I'm not talking about struggling with gender dysphoria. I always knew, I always knew the truth about that. But I'm talking about other aspects of my personality that came alive in Christ that I never knew until I came to meet him. Okay, So I might be getting a little bit uh, off track here, but I, what I want to say is that this is a battlefront too, is where does identity come from? Does it come from God or does it come from self? And if you're a parent, that's important. Uh, it's important for all of us, but this is an area of the battlefront. And then related to that is orientations. Because remember, sexual appetites and identities are part of what is marred in the fall. Okay, So we have a perfect explanation about why some people have preferences that are perverse in God's eyes. It's because we're fallen. Of course people are going to have tendencies like that. Fallen, and then we feed the fallen nature, and we go down a certain path. Okay, and so we're challenging these things. These are the I. These are the E, E O I's, E I O's. How did uh, Old McDonald say it? E I O. Okay, emotions, identities, and orientations. There we go. The E I O's. So these these are the problems. And if you want to read more on this, there's a really interesting book that's come out. Uh, it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit technical, but if he, he's got another version of it, which is uh, a little bit shorter and more concise. It's called The Strange New World or Strange New World by Carl Truman. And he talks about the subtitle of it is um, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. It's a, an interesting take on this. He traces. He's a historian, and he's a pastor. And I think he taught he taught secular universities. You know, really esteemed secular universities. He taught history there, 
and he's coming from a he was also a pastor so imagine that conflict and part of what spurred this i think was somebody being challenged to use certain kind of pronouns for somebody who wanted to choose a different identity than their biological identity and so this kind of sparked a little bit of uh, a little bit of this response um, carl truman and so we're facing Battles like this, they're not the main thing, but as a Christian, you'll take a stand on these issues, and it will probably be this that will bring persecution, because in the minds of most people, you're free to believe whatever you want as long as you don't bring your opinions into the public forum and disrupt our freedom, right? Like, if we want to come here and we want to we want to pray and sing hymns and talk about Jesus, nobody has a problem with that. But if you start to say certain behaviors are wrong... We're in a we're in a cosmic battle suddenly. Are, are you with me? Like, what Satan would love to do is let us practice our religion in private and not change our world. He'd love for that. He'd love for us just to keep our religion to ourselves and not pass it on to our kids. He'd love that. Don't tread on any controversial issues. The state might intervene and take your kids away. That's the fear. And I'm telling you, that's a very real fear. I, I fear for, for that, that, and I'm not a parent, but I fear for that, that godly Christian parents may lose their rights because they've taken a particular stand. This is the battle lines that are drawn up. And so there is persecution in the world. We're facing a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and there's a real axis of evil in this. Uh, that brings these things together. The church is triumphant. I don't think we need to be a victim in all of this, as we've, we've said. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we don't need to feel like we're victims in all of this. I don't think that's the issue. Um, a church has survived and thrived in times of persecution in the past. One of the, the oldest churches that underwent hell on earth be the Coptic church in in Egypt. Man, they went through wave after wave of persecutions, withstood that. I don't know if we'd agree with all their beliefs, but they've withstood persecution. And other places around the world where the church has thrived and is thriving in the midst of persecution. And so we sometimes think if all the persecution would die off, the church would really grow. It's not always the case. Sometimes persecution serves a good purpose in our lives. One, persecution can help us to identify with Jesus. Do you know that? When you're persecuted, it kind of draws up the lines and asks you the question, who are you most committed to? Yourself, your happiness, your comfort, this world, or Jesus? And so when persecution comes, it challenges us with those questions. And you know that Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. John 15 Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when uh, Saul of Tarsus, prior to us knowing him as Paul, by the way, uh, I'd just say that Jesus didn't change his name on the Damascus Road. I don't know if you knew that. Paul lived in Sicily, which was a Greek-speaking territory, and so he had a Hebrew name, Shaul, and a Greek name, Paul. So he had two names. So when he starts to do ministry among the Gentiles, then he goes by Paul. That's what happened. God didn't change his name on the Damascus Road, but he did change his nature and his direction. Okay, So here's what's happening is that Paul saw when he's going to persecute the church in Damascus, Jesus arrests him on the Damascus Road and says, Saul, what? Why do you persecute me? Who was is, who is Saul persecuting? The Christians. What does that mean? That means Jesus takes it personally. They're his. When you persecute his disciples, you persecute him. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul is writing about his striving for, uh, for the things of God. And he says uh, in chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know him. And then he says, I want to know, this is surprising, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's surprising. Like, I want to relate to him in the pain that he faced and in coming into this world. And what, what I think he means is he knows that that pain, that suffering is inevitable, but I think he wants to relate to Jesus, to Jesus in it. 
And then chapter, uh, excuse me, First Peter chapter four, verse thirteen. He once he Peter recognized this as participation in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, another thing that persecution can do is it can test it can test our loyalty to Jesus, not just to identify with him, but it test our loyalty. In Matthew chapter thirteen, verse twenty one, um, that when we are persecuted, it often tests the quality of our faith and our uh, allegiance to him. So remember the parable of the seeds. Remember? How many uh, among the seeds, if we're just to go by ratio, we don't know the exact number, but he casts seeds in how many directions? Four, right? Four. And uh, how many of that in terms of ratio survived? One out of four, right? 25%. I don't know if that's the... It's a, it's a story for a point. And one of the reasons that the seed died, it says one in one particular area that uh, persecution comes because of the word, some of them fall away, right? So persecution tests the quality of a person's faith. James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, when you face trials of many kinds, rejoice when you face trials of many times. Uh, many kinds, the test because it's the test in your faith which produces perseverance, and it goes on to talk about that. But it's it's describing persecution or suffering as the testing of faith. Third thing that can happen is it can demonstrate the worthiness of Jesus to others. First Peter chapter three verse thirteen uh, talks about this a little bit. The, the suffering when you face this suffering, uh, do it joyfully, and also. Uh, show respect to others in gentleness that they can see something of of God in you. And when they ask for the reason for the hope, then give them an answer for it. Because what, what Peter is saying, there's a subtext to this, is that you're going to face suffering, face it with hope, and then people are going to ask you why in the middle of that you can still have hope. And that's when you get an opportunity to tell them about Jesus. So it demonstrates his worthiness. You can see this also in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. And then um, there's a couple letters that we have outside the Bible from Pliny to Trajan and Galen uh, who talk about um, Christians. They're presented the opportunity to deny their God and live or to, or to continue to profess him and die. And many of them chose to go ahead and die. And these guys are astounded by that. Like, they wouldn't do that for their secular gods or their um, their Roman gods or their Greek gods. They, would do that. they wouldn't do that for that reason. But uh, these Christians were willing to do that, and it showed something of the worthiness of Jesus. And then a fourth thing that can happen as a result of persecution is persecution can cause us to lay aside unnecessary distractions. First Peter chapter four verse one through five talks about that that they that have have suffered in the flesh are done with sin. Okay, when you're suffering for Jesus, it takes it gives you a different perspective about how you want to live life. Okay, so Jesus told his disciples, "Do you know this that it's okay for them to flee persecution?" Like I don't think our attitude should be like some in the early church. They wanted to go and be martyred. They wanted to. They wanted to go and find a way, like intentionally. I don't think that that was necessarily uh, the right attitude towards it. I applaud their courage, but I wonder if that was really God's intention for them. Because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, he says, go, to, go from village to village. If persecution breaks out, then leave that, flee that village, and go to another one. So it gives them freedom to not have to stick around necessarily and face that persecution. But sometimes that's not an option. Sometimes you have to stay in a situation that's hard and bear up under it. And in those cases, God will give help. I'd like you to notice that it says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I still think this is Matthew's way of recording Jesus' words about the kingdom of God, that kingdom of heaven equals kingdom of God. He's using a a Jewish... um, a Jewish way of speaking that would say, let's keep God, uh, let's be careful about saying his name too much. And so 
kingdom of heaven, you can see it in some passages that are parallel between Matthew and the other Gospels. Matthew prefers kingdom of heaven. But in the other Gospels, the same verse will say kingdom of God. And so he's not talking about heaven. He's using heaven as a circumlocution or a, uh, a way of working around without saying God. He's talking about God, the kingdom of God. Okay, so theirs is the kingdom of God. So Jesus here is talking about living under the king, under his lordship and his kingship, not necessarily of going to heaven. Sure, that's true. Those who are in the kingdom of God will go to heaven, will be rewarded with heaven. But what he's talking about here is this is what the kingdom of God looks like. It's going to be those who are persecuted, but they're blessed. Okay, when we're persecuted for righteousness sake, we're blessed. R.T. France in his commentary says, as the following verses will spell out more fully, to live as subjects of the kingdom of heaven is to be set over against the rest of society, which does not share its values. And the result may be, indeed, the uncompromising wording of this beatitude suggests that it will be persecution. So God's rule looks different from the world's way of doing things, and that creates persecution. But nevertheless, and be of good cheer, we're blessed. Okay, we're blessed. Even if we're persecuted, we're blessed. We're considered blessed and even enviable despite persecution. So again and again, I said early on, the New Testament writers will not allow us to be victims of persecution. You're not allowed to be a victim of persecution, not in the, not in the New Testament sense. Okay? Think about all that it says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, when you face persecution, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets and those who are before you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. That's why for Christ's sake, Paul says, I delight in weakness and in insults and in hardships and persecution and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Rejoice. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. That includes persecutions. 1 Peter 1, 6. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. Rejoice, he says, First Peter four thirteen. Rejoice in so much as you participate in these sufferings, so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. And First Peter chapter four verse sixteen. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. And you see it in the example of the disciples when they they left after being chided by the religious leaders. They went away rejoicing because they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So I wanted to say that more than a few people in our fellowship here experience persecution for their faith, okay? If persecution means uh, to be harassed or to be excluded in some way because you're righteous, then I know it happens already. We're not, we're probably on the world scale, we're not facing massive persecution. If you know the history of persecution, uh, Within the church, one of the things that happened is that people got excluded from the synagogues. You couldn't come to church anymore. You got disfellowshipped, right? Like some people wanted to go to the synagogue still, and so you got synagogue kicked them out. Uh, some people, when they set up their booth in the marketplace, other people in the society wouldn't go and patronize their booth because they're Christians, because they wouldn't go to the festivals and celebrate the gods and enjoy the parades and and pay tribute to the gods, they got neglected, and it hit them in a financial way because they're Christians. That's persecution. Sometimes people got excluded and disinherited and disowned. I know there are people in our fellowship that, because of their commitment to Jesus, they're excluded in their families, more than one. I can think of three right off the top of my head, people who in their families are excluded because they're committed to Christ. And so these are forms of persecution. But we're encouraged to be of good cheer, okay? Even if we're excluded or insulted or passed over, some of them, they don't have the relationship with the kids that they want because of their relationship to Christ. But we have to be aware of the temptation to compromise 
And we might even be tempted to say, well, the main thing is that we lift up Jesus. It doesn't matter about these other areas of truth. All areas of truth matter. And we may have to pay a price in areas we'd rather not because of our loyalty to Jesus. All right? The biblical attitude, I think, is don't look for it. It'll find you. (laughs) Right? And don't be surprised by it. Don't sulk about it. Rejoice because God's got all these things under control, and he calls us to an eternal perspective on it. And there's more. I've got about half a dozen more scriptures here, but we're going to stop there for tonight. So would you stand with me? Maybe this is a message we we may not be battling with right now. Like may, maybe you don't face much of it now, but there's a good possibility in our future this might be a very pressing reality in the day-to-day for Christians. And maybe it's not even you. Maybe it'll be your kids. Jesus should tarry is coming. So can we tonight just commit ourselves to stand for what's right and to love God, to be to try to live worthy of him, to care about what righteousness uh, promotes, to, to live righteously. And if, if you're parents, to teach your kids those things. Can we do that? Father, thank you, Lord, that you've promised us such a great... Uh, and precious promise here in this that you said those who are persecuted for righteousness sake uh, blessed, they're blessed because theirs is uh, the kingdom of heaven and I thank you Lord that you've opened your kingdom to those who are uh, those that may be turned out by the world we thank you Lord that uh, even in that kind of rejection there will one day be a vindication which you'll call right those who are right and you'll display them for the world as trophies of your glory and honor. And God, I'm praying tonight that you help us as Christians to stand for what's right, to live what's right, um, to be counted when it when the uh, opportunity comes to, to say the right thing. We don't have to say it in a, a way that's abusive, but we ought to say it with respect, as you said in your word in First Peter 3. But I pray that you help us to be willing to suffer for doing what's right and not, not to flee and, and be afraid of taking the hard stand. And I pray for these parents, Lord, that they're teaching their kids in an increasingly confused world what it means to live for you, what right and wrong are. And I pray that you not only give them wisdom but knowledge and help them to know your word in such a way that can't be refuted by the world's arguments And I pray that you give increasing evidence that the world's way of living is destructive. And so that we can point to those examples and say, this is why we do what's right. First of all, because it pleases you and it's what's right in your eyes. And and because the alternative is a life that's shipwrecked and ruined. We ask for your help. Lord, help every parent to have the boldness to stand for what's right, to have the courage to do it, and to live it out in a way that the kids can see it. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.